to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Corinthians as we continue our journey through that letter, the fourth letter to the church of Corinth. We know as 2 Corinthians, but it happens to be the fourth letter. Controlled by the love of Christ is the title. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I pray that you took some time to read through this passage yourself and pray through it, because I think you'll be much more powerful the Spirit prepares your heart as you come prepared. If not, then we just pray that God will use His Spirit and work through that. In here, we've been going through, as Paul just continues to defend his ministry against the reluctance of the Corinthians church to accept him as there's some turmoil going in, Paul is now going to give the Corinthians the big picture. We always like, you know that phrase, he's going to give you the big picture. We're going to see what you're missing. And, and they had kind of a very small, focused lens of what was going on. And Paul now is going to say, no, that you're missing something about what you are and what God's called you to do and what the church. And the big picture simply is this, if you'd like to take notes, is God is doing a wonderful, mighty work in reconciling the world to himself, and you and I are called to join him. Let me say that again if you didn't get it. God is doing a wonderful and mighty work. Amen? Okay? You are hopefully and prayerfully in a, in a, a demonstration of that, a testimony of that. God is doing a wonderful, mighty work in reconciling himself or excuse me, reconciling the world to himself, and you and I, we are called to join him. And that's where we find ourselves in 11 through 21. Let's read this together and then let's pray. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, Paul writes. But what we are known, or what we are, is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your own conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Verse 13. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. For, we if, if, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18. All this, 
is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, uh, I'm sorry, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a wonderful word. Father, speak to us this morning. Let your Holy Spirit shake the foundations of this church and the foundation of each and every heart. Grab a hold of it. Lord, I pray that you impress upon us the truth of this great doctrine we're about to expose. Lord, may your Spirit just allow this scripture to comfort us and give us assurance. May it challenge us. And also may it warn us and rebuke us if necessary. Do the work that you've planned in each and every heart. And I pray that you would be with me. Let me speak clearly. Let me speak boldly the words that you've given. And Lord, may we be able to tell the difference between your words and my opinion. For let your truth be preeminent in your house. And all God's people said, Amen. This is carrying on from verse 9 and 10 in chapter 5. I'm in the wrong place here. Let me turn real quickly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, go back to verse 9 and 10 if you have your Bible. You see, we ended last week with this with, where Paul says, so whether we are at our home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Remember, aim, ready, ready, aim, fire, that was the title last week, ready, aim, fire, is our aim, our goal in life is to please whom? God. Does that come easily and naturally to us? No. Even in our new state, does it come easy? No. No, there's always going to be that battle. Hence, you'll see Paul use terms like we war against the spirit and the, and the flesh war against each other. We, there's a battle going on. But he says our aim is to please God. And we challenged you last week, what's your aim? Who are you seeking to please? And then we saw that word of warning. For we all must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we recognize our aim is to please God because one day we will stand before a God who says, vengeance is mine, as Matt, as Matt read earlier in Hebrews. And what it is is danger, or what is that phrase that he used there, to, to fall in the hands of a living God. So I'm going to share with you five little observations that I've made of this passage, and I pray that God will use them in a mighty way for you. The first thing that we see as Paul continues this is we see Paul's motivation and a task that he has. And we see that in verse 11. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What's his motivation is a fear of the Lord. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord can sometimes be misconstrued. We don't like to hear that term, the fear of the Lord, because we feel that fear means that I'm scared, that I'm frightened of, and, and we don't think we should be fearful or fear 
a living, almighty, powerful, ultimate power of the universe. There's just something about us that says we shouldn't do that. But what does Scripture tell us? Is that the beginning of wisdom was what? Fear the Lord. Whoever said that, thank you, you got it right. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But I think what we, you and I need to do is we need to understand what the fear of the Lord is. And I think there's two different ways to look at it. For the Christian, and I think the ESV Study Bible answers this, writes that the fear of the Lord does not mean fear of final judgment, for we know that we will not be condemned. It's not a fear of final judgment, but a common theme that runs through Scripture to, either, to fear as godly awe and reverence or devotion or a fear of God's displeasure and fatherly discipline. David Garland, writing in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, writes that the fear of God refers to the religious consciousness of reverential awe of God that directs the way that we live. So for the Christian, it's recognizing who God is. I think it's probably interesting is, what's the first uh, um, beatitude? Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. What he's talking about, not that we're poor or beggars, but that we're humble. So really, the beginning of wisdom is understanding who God is and who you are. And I think that's where many of us miss the mark, is we don't truly understand who God is and ourselves. We need to recognize it, is that a fear of God for a Christian is a reverential awe of the mightiness and the wonderfulness of who God is. And the fact that because we know who God is and who we are, that fear of God or that awe of God, that worship of God, directs our life to live in a certain way. We recognize that one day we'll stand before him and that there were hands of a mighty being, of a mighty personal God. Whereas someone who does not fear God, someone who does not fear God, is actually considered in the Bible a fool. In Proverbs, I don't know how many of you read Proverbs, but you'll see that word again, fool. And what a fool is, is someone who does not take God into account in the way he thinks, in the way he lives, in his decisions. He can be a fool with his money. He can be a fool at his job, in his, in his, in his economics. He can be a fool in his relationships. You can be a fool in many ways. It's someone who does not take into account that there is a God that they one day will stand before. Psalms 14.1 says, A fool has said in his heart, There is no God. It goes on to say, They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. We see an illustration of someone like this in the parable of the rich fool found in Luke chapter 12, 19-20, if you want to read that later. In it, Jesus gives a story of a rich man who, who received a bountiful supply of, of crops and all things. And in it, he says, what should I do with all that I have gathered? He says, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns and bigger storages, and I'll put it all away so that I can enjoy it the rest of my life. And Jesus said, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for my years. I'm sorry, this is the rich man. He says, I've laid up for many years. Relax, he says, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared and whose will they be 
then. See, a fool is someone who does not fear God. They live and dictate their lives as if they will never, ever stand before God. And that's what Paul says. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, there's a motivation. I recognize one day I will stand before Him. Many today will may not say the words no to God. You may say, well, there's no God, but many live their lives as if they said it anyway. They live their lives as if there's no God. They live their lives as if there's no judgment or there's no, no accountability. It's my life. I can make the decisions I want. I can live the life I want. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Come on, anyone here ever had teenage kids? Teenagers? But we say it all the time, do we not? It's my life, and I'll live it my own way. The Bible calls that a fool. So I would challenge you today, let's just take a break. How many of you today are saying that there is no God by the way that you live your life? The Bible says every secret thing, every hidden thing will one day be exposed in front of God. There's nothing that he cannot see. There's nowhere he can ride, or nowhere we can hide, nowhere we can run. But what we see here, Paul says, I recognize the fear of the Lord. I know it. David Garland again observes that Paul's supreme awe of God motivates Paul to act as he does. It provide, prevents him from vainly trying to rely on his own meager resources. What got Paul through the beatings? What got Paul through the stonings? What got Paul through all the imprisonments and all the, all the torture and the accusations? He didn't fear man. He feared God. What can man do to me? As Scripture says, fear not the one who kills the body, right? but fear the one that can kill both body and the soul. That's who we're to fear. And I pray today, do you have a healthy fear? Again, fear is a good thing, is it not? How many of you just like to get rid of fear? I wouldn't. Fear is safety, is it not? Having a healthy fear is good. One of the things that I have a healthy fear is Mac can contest this. I had to go light the pilot light uh, in, the, in, one of, in one of the furnaces, and I asked him to come in with me. And I opened the door, and I said, everyone knows 911, right? You hear a pop, you hear me scream, dial it. And I made sure that everyone could hear Matt if something happened. I told him to stand outside the door. You know, I'm watching my intern. He's got to get married first. And I'm just sitting there. I have a healthy fear of gas and electricity. I touch them and use them very, very carefully. That fear keeps me safe. You understand what I'm saying? You want uh, to have a healthy fear of things. It prevents us from doing things that we are we call foolish. So you and I as a church, we need to develop a healthy fear of the one who gives life and takes life. Or as we sung earlier, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh. A fool says, damn that God. The wise says, 
Blessed be his name. So what are you today? Wise or foolish? For Paul, it helps him to act and persuades him to do what God has called him to do. Paul has no fear of condemnation. He considers his life an open book. I fear God, so I live it to please Him. It's an open book. You can see within my life and see what type of person that I am. He realizes I will stand before a mighty God, but I don't fear condemnation. I don't fear judgment. He's confident because he knows that God judges his heart. And he realizes as long as I have a fear of God, I will please him. But he's vexed by this church of Corinth, these these children of his. Because they judge him, but they don't judge his heart. They judge him by the outward appearance. And I'm being redundant here. We've, we've, we've explained this over the last few months. Is This is what the Corinthians are doing. They're judging him, not by his heart, but by the outward appearance of his ministry. Paul is not in ministry for himself. And this points to his responsibility and the importance he puts on this ministry of the Spirit and the accountability because he recognized that he's an ambassador of God and we're going to look at as God calls us to that. Paul realizes, I'm not representing myself here in Corinth. I'm not representing myself as he moves along the, the Asian, Grecian, European border in, 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 in the Middle East. He says, I'm not doing for myself. I'm an ambassador. I represent someone higher and greater than myself. And I know that one day I'm going to be called back home and as an ambassador here gets called back to home and has to answer to the president, to the king, whatever it might be, he says, I have to answer to someone greater. Knowing God and the fear of God moves him to persuade others to know God also. So Paul's motivation is knowing the fear of God, knowing who God is, and knowing who he is. And that persuades him to continue to seek. The second thing that we also see in verses 14 and 15, we're going to look at several select verses here. But Paul understands that his life is no longer his. Paul understands that his life is no longer his. Look at verse 14. For he says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died, therefore all have died. Where he has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I look up this word control. Some of your Bibles uh, might say uh, the love of God constrains us. If you might have an old one, it might say, or the NIV might say, the love of God compels us. What that word means is to afflict, afflict, excuse me, to sicken, to hold in custody, to surround, to stop, to occupy or control. And that's what he's saying here is that the love of God is so strong and powerful that it afflicts me. I'm sickened with it, and you can understand that. When you have the flu or you're sick, I mean, your whole body, right, is just invaded by the virus or the bug. And it affects everything you do. You know what I'm saying? He's saying the love of God sickens me. 
It afflicts me. It controls me. Everything I do, it is the one that's motivating me to do so. Let me ask you, are you controlled by the love of God? Are you constrained? Are you afflicted with it? In other words, knowing the mighty power and wrath of God ought to to lead us to persuade others not to live for themselves. Paul is saying here is that the love of God, and what is the love of Christ? Excuse me, the love of Christ. The love of Christ is that he gave himself for me. And because he died for me, I now now live for him. That's what the Bible is saying here. It's what ought to motivate me and what ought to get me moving. It's to understand that once I was dead, but now I'm alive. Because Jesus is the one who now made me alive, I now live for him. And the life I live is the life of Jesus Christ. And that points to the third one, is that Paul points out that in Christ, you and I are different. The reason why the love of Christ controls us and motivates us to live a life that's no longer ours is because we see in verse 17, our life is different. He says in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What we see very simply is that Christ comes and replaces the old nature with the new nature. The new creature, the new creation. There's something different about us. Ken Bauer, who's a pastor in Detroit, writes concerning the new creation. He says the new creation involves an inward change. And what we're talking about is regeneration. We've spoken about this quite a bit. He says it involves an inward change or transformation that accompanies repentance and it results in a devotion and obedience to God. This inward change is something that God himself will work. It's called regeneration. We've talked about this many times before. And what we're seeing here is once we were children of disobedience, right? We were children of wrath. We were all going our own way, doing and pleasing just ourselves. But now the new nature is, God says with repentance and confession, he removes that and he now imparts into us a different desire a desire to give our lives in devotion and obedience to God. And that's what we're imploring you today. What is your devotion and your obedience? Is it to the Father? Or is it still to yourself? To what are you enslaved? But be encouraged and also be challenged today. The Bible says that if you are in Christ, you are a new creature There's something different about you. You don't have to live the old way. I love that old gospel song. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. The places I used to go, I don't go there anymore. I don't remember the rest of the song, but you understand the concept. Is there something different about us? We're a new creation. But I know if you're like me, I use the word remove the old nature, and that's probably not the best way to write it. Because unfortunately, the old nature isn't totally eradicated. Oh, Lord, I wish in his wisdom he would have done that, but he chose not to. In other words, he kind of left it there. 
And that's when we hear the words again, warned between the flesh and the spirit. The old nature is not eradicated, but he's given us on part of it something new or something greater. And if you're like me today, and like so many of us today, you may fret or fear that the old nature is still alive and in control. Do you ever worry about that? Do you ever feel like that battle's so strong that you almost doubt your own salvation if the new creature is there in the new nature? I'd like to give you words of a pastor called the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. I think on the back I have a, a, a biography of him. I would encourage you to read it. Uh, everything by Charles Spurgeon is, is almost golden. But he wrote concerning the old nature. He said, one of the best men, this is him speaking, he said, one of the best men I ever knew said at 80 years of age, I find the old man is not dead yet. Oh my goodness, at 80 years old, the man says he's still there, he's not dead yet. He said our old man is crucified but he is long a dying. An old word that just means it's taken a long time. He is not dead when we think he is. You may, be, you may live to be very old, but you will have need still to watch against what's called the carnal nature, which remains even in the regenerate. That's why Paul says, my aim is to please God. And the reason why he says, I aim to please God, is because he recognizes that there is on our half a, a, a chance that we may not. Not only a chance, but probably we're going to be struggling with that. So aim to please God, so that you do not miss the mark. So you and I recognize that that old nature is not eradicated, but let me strengthen and encourage you. The Bible says that you have something within you, a new nature, a new creation. You no longer have to give in to the old nature. And it brings you back to an old Indian proverb or Native American proverb that I've shared with you before. Where a grandfather and a father were watching, in, in the, they, had a, they had two wolves. They had a big old one and, a, and a, a two big old wolves sitting there. And he says, well, which one will grow bigger and stronger? He says, the one that you feed the most. So let me ask you, what are you feeding the most? The old nature or the new nature? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you participating in? Does it feed the old carnal nature or does it feed the new creature? To everyone you feed, it's going to be strongest. That's what the Bible says. Fight the good fight. Aim to please God. Philippians 4.8 Whatsoever is lovely, is just, is good, is of a good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, do what? Think on these things. God has given you the filter, the spam filter of how to know what's old and what's new. I would challenge you. Paul points out that in Christ, you and I are different. We are no longer to live our lives for ourselves, for we have been saved. And since someone saved us, we now become enslaved to them, seeking to please them. What we need to recognize is the fourth thing that Paul points out is that this new nature is a gift from God. It's not something that you and I can do. It's not something that you and I can buy a book and say 30 easy days, right? We love those. 
Or hey, do you have a pill for that? We always want a new pill, right? Or what Huey Lewis said, we all need a new drug, right? We want something to help us through. But Paul says here, God is the one who gives us the new nature. Look at verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, amen? Praise Him, glorify Him, who through Christ He reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What you see in that passage is there is no me doing anything at all. It is God who's taking care of business. All I do is respond to what he's done. The new nature is a gift from God. And it comes from his reconciliation. Again, another term. What does reconciliation mean? This may be old news to you. You've heard me say it. Reconciliation is kind of a financial term. We use it in baking. You use it in checks. It used to be a thing. I don't know if you remember. Remember the days when you would get from the bank, you would get it on your bank, your statement, and you would reconcile your book, you know, your checkbook. Now, I couldn't wait for Quicken. Quicken was like God sent to me. You know, I could do all this with a click of a mouse. Now they have QuickBooks and all the different things, but you could easily reconcile. In other words, put things in balance and see things as they are. And the Bible says that Jesus, or God through Jesus, has now put in balance or made right or made things equal, the things that were wrong or out of balance. Something that God does for us, not something we do in ourselves. What is reconciliation? We see it in verse 21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. This is called the great exchange. Write that down in your notes. The great exchange. You need to realize, you've heard this from me many times. The great exchange. Where God takes Jesus who knew no sin and takes our sin and puts it on Jesus. And not only that, God says, wait a second, Jesus, wait a second. I'm not only going to take their sin and give it to you, but I'm going to take your righteousness and I'm going to give it to them. Amen? That's the great exchange. You and I did nothing. We're sitting there like, you're taking the evil, the bad, everything out of me, and you're giving me something good? I don't deserve this. Yes, that's right, you don't. The Bible says this is my gift to you. I'm putting right what went wrong. You created the mess, but I'll finish it out. The result of that great change is, listen to this, write this down if you're taking notes. And see, this is how the new nature is imparted to us. Because the result of the great exchange is three things. One is the penalty of death is paid. The penalty of death is paid. For the wages of sin is death is what? Or the, I just said it. The wages of sin is death, or the penalty of sin is death. Don't you love it when I give you the answers in my questions? But the penalty is paid, Amen. I no longer have to pay it. The second thing of the great exchange is the record of sin is erased. See, there's a difference, right? Because you can go to jail and pay your penalty, but when you get out, what's against you? That record, right? 
You've got to put, I'm a convict. I've been convicted. That record follows you the rest of your way. And we all know that. We know it's whether it's a, a criminal record or whether it's our school. That's why your parents tell you, do well because what you do will follow you through. And then we find out the examples of that when we try to go forward and all of a sudden, all these records. But the record of sin is erased. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west. Like what it says, he puts it in the deepest hole, and I'll add, or the deepest ocean, and I'm going to add my own, is that he puts up no fishing signs. The third thing that happens because of the great exchange is that the works of the devil defeated. Yeah, that old nature is there, but it is powerless. It is a toothless lion. It says it's a roaring lion seeking to devour, but he's toothless when it comes to Christians. He has no bite. It's all bark. His works are dead. You and I need to realize that's words of encouragement. This passage of scripture, by the way, is one of the greatest passages found in all of Scripture. And what we're seeing here is something wonderful that God has given us. And this new nature, this new gift, this greatest change is all a gift from God. And let's go to the fifth one. Not only did we see Paul's motivation and task, not only did we understand that Paul that, that Paul understood that his life was not his own, and that in Christ we're different, and that difference, that new nature is a gift from God, but the fifth thing we're going to see in verse 20 is that you and I are to share this gift with others. For if I were to start with verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing of the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And then we go to verse 20, we say, Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. What do we persuade him about? He says, God is making his appeal through us. What appeal is that? Is that be reconciled to God. For he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So God is doing a mighty work. He's reconciling the world to himself one heart at a time. Has there been a time when God came to you and said, been reconciled? He's come and says, let me give you my new heart. And you said, yes. The Bible says we're to continue to do that. For once you and I have done that, now our job is to go throughout the world and implore others. Hey, God is reconciling himself or the world to himself. Would you be part of that? Do you want the balance or do you want the scales balanced? Are you ready to be made right before God? Most people don't believe that there's a problem. They don't even realize that there is a problem between them and God. We see it all the time. I'm a good person. I've done okay. God wouldn't send me to hell. I'm, I'm, not, I'm better than somebody else. And we always compare ourselves, right, to somebody worse. We never compare ourselves to somebody greater and better. But you see that there was a necessity for God to reconcile. And I think if you and I understood the reconciliation ministry of God and the fear of the, God, fear of the Lord, then you and I would understand why he says we implore you to persuade others. I want to read to you a quote, and I want you to think about this quote. Jonathan Edwards wrote probably one of the famous sermons of all times. Sinners in the hands of angry God. Have you ever heard of it? 
I encourage you, I think I have it on the back table in one of those things in paper form. Most of you probably read it in high school. It is still, or maybe eighth grade, it's still required reading in most public schools in whenever you take American literature. So maybe that's a junior year, I'm not sure. But Jonathan Edwards writes this. Hear what I'm about to read. It's not scripture, but it's powerful. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of his divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay a hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Early in that message, he wrote that there is nothing, listen to this, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell, but the clear pleasure of God. Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, I persuade others. God says, you need to know me. You need to know the plight of men. And you need to implore others to be made right before me. The Corinthians were so self-absorbed and so inward-looking that they missed the big picture. For them, they were fighting and struggling with each other. We saw that in 1 Corinthians. Paul now says, listen, you're, 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 he writes to them, and they get mad at him, and others try to strike up a rebellion against him, and then he becomes the object of their, of their anger, and Paul says, listen, you are in the wrong, you are missing the big picture. And I think many times you and I are also are missing the big picture. But God has called us to persuade others of their need of a Savior. Greg Steyer from Dare to Share, it's a teenage um, parachurch ministry, great ministry, and it helps teenagers um, learn how to share their faith. He writes that there's three brands of duct tape that keep Christians quiet about Jesus. For that's the question I asked myself when preparing this. Well, if we know the fear of God, and we are to persuade others by imploring them to be reconciled by God because we're constrained or controlled by the love of God, what is it that's more powerful than the love of Christ? What is it that's more powerful than the love of Christ that keeps many Christians from sharing their faith? What is it? 
He says, these types of tape seek to seal our mouths shut about the good news of Jesus. He says, some brands are big and bold, others are small and sticky, but they all result in the same thing from Christians and the church. It results in silence. That's what you hear from the church of God in a lot of days of uncertainty. Oh, we'll hear political things. We'll hear about the Constitution. We may hear about this or that. We may hear about how we should be about social justice and whom we should include and whom we should not, whom we should exclude. But are we hearing the most important message? Since the first one is the uh, um, I'm not sure duct tape. It's the Christian who doesn't know their faith, who doesn't know the gospel, doesn't know how to share it. Well, I'm not sure how one gets to heaven. I just said a prayer. I stood up or I went forward. I'm not sure how to share it. Let it not be so. Randy and I, the elders, we, we were discussing this very thing yesterday. We hope here soon we're going to have another evangelism um, Saturday where we come in and share with you how to share the gospel and create more opportunities for us to do it. We have a great field that's opening up to us uh, in the next month and a half, two months. We need to be vocal. And let me tell you, do you want to stand before God and says, I'm sorry, I just didn't know how to implore anyone to come to you? What kind of excuse would that be? The second one is the one of fear. We've talked about that earlier. We all have that. What if they shut the door in my face? What if they get angry? What if they ridicule me? What if one of my family members, what if they, they, uh, they reject me? Let me say, it's better to be rejected by your family than for them to be rejected by God. Share the gospel. Let them hear the words. And then the last one is probably the worst one of all. And I think this is the one that affects most people. And to be honest, it's the saddest one. And that's the one of apathy. Excuse my French, but you really just don't give a damn. They go to hell, they go to hell. And there's some of you that are more concerned that I said the word damned and hell in church than the fact that people are damned and going to hell. You and I, as Christians, do not have the luxury of being silent. For you and I must recognize that God is doing a wonderful, mighty work in reconciling the world to himself, and he's called you and I to join him in that task. Would you do so? Would you do so? Are you ready? Father, give us the strength to do so. Speak to our hearts. Do not let this message go away. I pray that it, like a sledgehammer, it will hit our hearts and minds the rest of this week until we bow our heads and knees and we say, Lord, we fear you and we are persuaded to do what you have called us to do. And Lord, may we glorify you in doing so. In the name of your Son, we thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. 
Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.